Hello and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. Today we're talking about empathy in sales. So empathy in sales. Now, in my mind, that conjures up images of vacuum cleaner salesmen and car salesmen. And although we do touch on professional salesmen, we really do explore the concept of sales and how it applies to everybody. So whether you're in business, whether you've got a startup, whether you're in non-profit and you're fundraising, you need sales and sales skills and the human skills that come along with sales. So we're going to explore what what part empathy plays in the sales process, but also what part taking care of your own mental health and putting yourself first, what implications that has for improving your sales. So there's a really um, nice discussion that we have about empathy and mental health and how to get better results by being kinder to yourself and more empathetic to your customers and really focusing on those relationships. So today we're talking to Kian McLaughlin, who's written books and he's got blogs and um, podcasts and all that sort of stuff about sales. So I love this chat. I sat there listening the whole time, just going, oh my God, I'm and taking notes going, I can use this, I can use this. Um, so enjoy today's podcast with Kian McLaughlin is Empathy and Sales. This is the Empathy Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. Today, we're talking to Kian McLaughlin. So, I met Kian, we've met virtually now, yes, but I met you because you were introduced to me by somebody I sat next to on a plane going to the United States. So, sure. it is a very small world, but it's lovely to meet you. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Kian, today we're talking about empathy in sales. So, yep. and I think in my world, because I'm in the social enterprise world, the mental health space, when I'm not in a corporate world, and I think a lot of us have a resistance to the word sales. So let's talk today about sales, about empathy in sales, but also about mental health in sales and how this is actually relevant to all of us, not just sales people or those people that we traditionally identify as sales people. So look, I think, you know, empathy and sales are two words that don't necessarily go hand in hand for many people. We, we, we have a perception of, of salespeople and you sort of alluded to that when we were chatting a little bit earlier that, you know, door to door salesperson trying to flog a, a vacuum cleaner or something else. Um, I think, you know, a couple of things have happened. There's been some negative behaviors and practices in, in the sales industry, in both the business-to-business -business sales industry and the business-to-consumer sales industry over, over many, many years. And that has, has tarnished the sales profession um, right across the industry, which is really unfortunate. Um, the behavior of a few uh, individuals who have, you know, used high pressure sales tactics or, you know, calling people at home, you know, when they're trying to sit down to dinner with their families or all those kind of things. We've actually had to legislate against some of those behaviors and create do not call registers. And, you know, people don't want hawkers coming into their office and all sorts of different things. But I think it's really important that we realize that that is a very, very small subset of the, the sales industry or the sales profession. Um, the vast majority of 
people who are in sales didn't set out to be in sales. And I'm, I'm one of those. You know, I've worked with sales teams all over the world. And I'll often ask the question, how many of you wanted to be in sales when you grew up, when you were a child? And I'm yet to see a hand go up in the room because very few six-year-olds or 10-year-olds are, are aspiring to a career in sales. What happens is we all just sort of stumble into it one way or another. But, but I think there's a couple of traits that I see in, in, in the most successful salespeople who have the longest uh, careers. And those traits are not necessarily associated with, with the word sales. They tend to be a little bit more introverted than extroverted. They tend to, to listen better than, you know, more frequently than they talk. They tend to be quite humble. They, they have a real desire to help. And, you know, they stick around for the long haul. I mean, it's relatively easy to sell something and disappear into the wind, um, never to be seen or heard from again. And that's where some of those shonky practices come from. But oftentimes you hear the adage that a customer is only a customer when they buy from you for the second time. The first time we buy, very often we're just dipping our toe in the water. We're giving you a chance. We're giving you an opportunity. And depending on how you, um, how you respond to that and, and how um, you deliver on the promises you've made, that gives you access or the opportunity to a much, much broader um, business relationship. So I think in, in my experience, the vast majority of salespeople are um, incredibly customer-centric. They genuinely care. They want the customer to get a really good outcome. Yes, absolutely. They, they want to make a profit or, or they want to you know, derive some revenue along the way. But those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And I don't think one is a negative and the other is a positive. Ultimately, what salespeople are doing is they are the individuals who are putting their hand up to take responsibility to keep money flowing into a business. And that keeps everyone else employed. You know, if you enjoy paying your, your mortgage or putting your kids through school and you work in a business and you're not in sales, somebody somewhere is owning that responsibility. And some, somebody somewhere is, is protecting you and your family and your, and your aspirations by saying, yes, I'll step up and own the sales number. So personally, I have a huge, huge respect for salespeople and a strong desire to see the profession um, you know, garner more respect and, and salespeople not have to hide behind different titles because they don't want to put their hands up to say they're in sales. I've been in the industry for 20 years. I've never had the word sales on a single business card um, for whatever reason. And, and I think one of those reasons is because for many years, I had a negative perception of the word sales and I didn't want to perceive myself that way. So I called myself an account manager or a channel manager or any number of other different things. But ultimately, I was a sales guy. Yeah, gotcha. So what is your background? Where do you sort of fit? Um, and why is it that you are the best person to talk to me about this? Well, look, I don't know if I'm the best person, but I certainly have an opinion on this topic. Um, I've been in this industry for, for 20 plus years, um, worked for some of the biggest tech companies around the world, companies like Cognos and SAP. Um, and about 10 years ago, I stepped out of the corporate world to set up my own business. And um, what Trinity does is something pretty simple, but a little bit unusual, perhaps. We call ourselves a sales training and, and a consulting company, but we do something called win-loss reviews. So we spend a huge amount of time talking to customers on behalf of the vendors, the sales organizations they've worked with, and asking the customers to explain to us why they made a buying decision to go with one company and not with another company. So we might interview someone for you know, 45 minutes or an hour, or a senior person who's engaged with four or five different sales organizations and they've picked one. They've said, right, we want to use your CRM system or we want to use your um, ERP system or we want to use your marketing automation system. What, what I'm really fascinated by is 
how did they arrive at that decision? When they're looking at four or five different organizations that each have a relatively similar solution, which is broadly speaking, sitting within a, a certain price range, how do they end up picking one business over the other? We've been doing that for 10 years. And in that time period, I've learned a staggering amount about what actually influences customers. And you know, by customers, I mean real people to make buying decisions. And what I've learned in that time, you know, if you sum it up in a single soundbite, is product and price gets you from the long list to the short list. And then people and purpose gets you from the short list to being picked as the vendor of choice. And that was a, that was a, a really um, surprising thing to learn um, and, and something that's been just reiterated and reiterated time and time again. So, so actually, the people element is not only is it still important, it's, it's probably the, the single biggest point of distinction in terms of how customers arrive at a buying decision. So um, price and what was it? Price. Product. Product and price, and price will yep. get you on the short list. People and yep. purpose will get you across the line. That's exactly right. Gotcha. So then as a tangent, are then social enterprises becoming better positioned to get across the line? Well, look, in theory, yes. But in practice, a, you know, a social organisation still needs to bring the appropriate level of professionalism and responsiveness and an understanding of what, the you know their their stakeholders need and want and care about so so in my view the more professionally you run your your um, your business be it be it a not for profit or a for profit the more responsive you are to customers the better you listen to them and then and then test and improve to deliver your you know the outcomes they want the easier you are to do business with all of these little things are becoming more and more. Um, important uh, in, in customers buying decisions so so yes in theory you you could become it could push you up the um the decision making criteria but there's still an underlying expectation of you need to listen to us one of the one of the biggest frustrations that most customers we talk to um express is that vendors don't listen and don't take the time to understand they jump straight into let me tell you about my solution let me tell you about the thing i have to sell straight into solutioning mode or problem solving mode before they've even taken the time to just do any basic analysis or diagnosis. And that's, that's a lack of empathy. That is a lack of, of the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes and try and understand where they're coming from and what's important to them and what are the problems. Yeah, gotcha. So then for definition's sake, let's say, um, let's broaden this out and go, well, who is this conversation about? applicable to because yes you might traditionally define yourself as a salesperson although you're not putting it on your business card um who does this conversation apply to and who is it that over the course of this conversation will be able to take um elements and skills out of to enhance their business there's a really interesting book by a guy called dan pink which is called to sell is human and in that book dan pink talks about the fact that actually the, the, the ability to sell is a skill that we all need to have, although we don't always recognize it. And he gives a whole lot of examples. He said, if you're a school teacher, you're selling knowledge in exchange for attention from your students. If you work inside a business, but you're not in an in a inverted commas sales role, you're selling your ideas to your colleagues in exchange for you know, the access to, to um, resources in order to bring your ideas to fruition. So actually, if, to your question, if we broaden out the, the, the scope, 
We're talking about anyone who works in a business, whether you run a business, whether you're a salesperson, or whether you work inside a business. Understanding how to sell really means understanding how to engage with someone else, how to um, express an idea that resonates with them and have them take action or, or you know, come on the journey with you. So that could be selling a tangible product or a tangible service, but equally it could be selling an idea or it could be selling knowledge in exchange for attention or any number of other different things. So, so the, the, the sales skill set, which has such negative connotations, is actually one which all of us need the capacity to, to get better at. And one of the big things we need to do is we need to get over this idea of sales being a negative thing. Because until we can do that, until we can make peace with that, there's a ton of great businesses and a ton of great ideas that just will never deliver on the value of, of the promise that they, they have because they feel awkward about the sales piece. So therefore, they want to give their IP away for free or they don't want to put a price tag on it or any number of other different things purely because of this innate fear we have of being seen as a salesperson. Or, you know, what, what's one of the biggest insults you can say? Uh, he was a bit salesy. She was a bit salesy. You, yes. know, and that, you know, and that's like, that's like a huge insult, you know. But what I'm saying is you don't have to be salesy to sell. You, you know, the best salespeople have the heart of a teacher. They don't have the soul of a salesperson. They want to give value, but they're not afraid to, you know, get value in return because they see that that's, a, that's an appropriate trade-off between, you know, what they're giving and, and what they're getting in return. Because I see that a lot. I mean, I've been in accelerators in the startup world and um, social enterprise world, and I see that a lot where people go, oh, my product and my social should speak for itself or whatever it is should speak for itself, and I don't do sales. Yep. So is that um, That's a, a cop-out. That's a cop-out okay. is what that is. <clears throat> and I'll tell you why. Because if you really believe in your product or your service or the idea that you'll bring, then the onus is on you to communicate that to a broad audience and to give enough people the opportunity to access that value that you're talking about. Now, we all know that it's a crowded, noisy market out there and only getting more crowded and more noisy. So, so the question becomes, how do you get your idea to stick? How do you get your um, value proposition to as broad an audience as possible? Well, the first thing you, you need to do is you have to make it really, really clear what the value is that you bring. So there's a sales component in that in terms of, in terms of um, breaking down your, your, your story into its component parts. You, you need to understand your audience and what they care about and what the problems are. There's a sales component in that as well. You need to work out what's the best channel to communicate it to, to, to these people. And should you do that directly one-to-one or should you le- leverage partnerships or strategic alliances? Again, all of that is about sales. And then you need to ask yourself the question, do I want to give this away for free? Or if this is my life's work, do I want to continue to do it? And therefore, do I need to be paid to do it so I can continue to do it for you know, 20 years or 30 years? And if that's the case, then you need to put an appropriate package or service or structure around that and a price point around that, which you feel comfortable with. So all of that is, is, you know, could be construed as, as sales related, but the failure to do that means it doesn't matter how great your idea is, no one's going to hear about it. No one's going to see it. And you will then, you know, sit there and, and, and blame all these different things. But really what you need to blame is the fact that you couldn't reconcile yourself to, to maybe somebody calling you salesy. And as a result, you weren't prepared to, to push beyond your comfort zone and your skill set to, um, to do some of the things you needed to do to get your, to get your story out there. 
And that might sound blunt or it might sound trite. I don't mean it to. I'm not trying to turn people into sales. I'm not trying to turn everyone into salesperson. What I am trying to do is help them understand that if you can unlock some of these behaviors, the likelihood of you being successful goes up exponentially. The likelihood of you positively impacting more people goes up exponentially. So, so you really owe it to yourself and you owe it to, to those you're trying to uh, have a positive impact on to understand how the parts of the puzzle work and to get it right and to become easier to do business with and easier to get your message out there. So that'd be my, my take. Do you think that there's an element, especially for people who maybe have come across um, a great idea and like, whoa, this could have value. Do you think there is a fear in there? Um, and whether it's, whether the fear is based on not understanding the market, not understanding the customer, but a fear of rejection. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I, I had my first decade was, was as a salesperson. So I had to, you know, very much get used to, to rejection. And my second decade was as a business owner and, Again, you, you have to you have, you have to put some chips down if you if you're if you're going to play the game. So you ha- and some of those chips for us are the f- the fear of it not working or of failure or of falling short or of any number of other different things. But I think the f- the regret of not doing it should be a bigger fear. And so, you know, if if you say I don't have all the answers, but I'm prepared to to start, and then I'm prepared to ask for help. And I'm prepared to surround myself with really good people, and I'm and I'm not I'm not afraid of hard work. So I'm willing to do the research around what works and what's worked for other similar businesses, and what are the key you know the classic mistakes people make, and how do I avoid those? So actually, do the work around how does one take an idea to market? How do you run a business? How do you do some of the things that that people often talk about but don't necessarily? You know, I mean, you're, you're a great example. You're you, you've created a podcast. You you know. From, from a standing start, you've obviously worked out, okay, I have a story I want to tell. Podcasting could be a really good platform to do that. Um, and then you've, you've obviously taught yourself how to do that. And then you've reached out to potential people to interview and you've, you've done all of that. So I think sometimes we create these mental barriers as to how difficult it is to do something. In the, in the world we live in now, there's never been a better time and never been an easier time to start a business. We have access to, to, to tools and technologies that, you know, only the big businesses did 10 or 15 years ago. So the playing field has been leveled. What that actually means is a lot of the excuses have, have disappeared. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to start a, a podcast, you Google how to start a podcast and you read and you read and you consume and you test and whatever. And if you want to start a business in a particular area, you, you, you start researching and you start asking questions, you meet people for coffee and you, you get curious. And then at a certain point you say, right, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the trigger and get started. And yes, you could fail, or it might not grow as, as exponentially as you want it, but at least you're trying. And, mm-hmm. and, and this is when some of these sales skills... So, so I stepped out of a corporate world, and I, I had never run a business. I'd never aspired to run a business. I sat in my second bedroom at home, staring at the wall going, what the hell have I just done? <laughs> Literally. And then my wife would come home from work, and I, I, I found myself telling her about the things I was thinking about maybe doing in business over the next couple of days and weeks. And she eventually stopped me and said, why, why are you doing that? Why do you keep doing it? And I realized I was so institutionalized after, you know, more than 10 years of working in big businesses. I, I actually had to ask someone permission to make basic decisions because I'd never had that remit in my job before to, to sort of say I'm going to do. And so I had to relearn how to, how to you know, make basic decisions, which is a, kind of a weird admission. And then it's, 
over 10 years, it's got to the, to the point where I couldn't work for anyone now because I'd be a terrible employee because I wouldn't agree with their decisions. And I'd, you know, I'd want to argue the toss as to, well, I don't think we should do that. Maybe we should do this. So what starts off as scary or uncomfortable, rapidly our, 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 our kind of knowledge pool and our sphere of experience expands. And all of a sudden we look back and we think, how, how did I get here? Because we've just kept iterating and trying new things and pushing outside of our comfort zone and freaking out and then not falling over. And all of a sudden we're doing the thing. And we yeah. think everyone has it worked out. No one has it worked out. We're all <laughs> faking it until we make it. Literally, we're all fake. Like, you know, I wrote a book and I, you know, do speaking in front of huge crowds and all that sort of stuff. There's still a ton of fear and a ton of um, uh, imposter syndrome at all of those stages. But you just get through it. You get on with it. And, and then all of a sudden, you look back and you realize, actually, yeah, you know, I, I could do that. So I don't know. That probably doesn't answer. I went in a rambling <laughs> monologue there. Apologies, Leanne. But um, yeah, no, I think ask for forgiveness rather than permission would be how, yeah. I, how I would approach it. And if you want to learn more about sales, um, there seems to be a lot of people talking about it in a, in a roundabout way without actually saying, learn about sales. Like there's brand storytelling and there's the customer journey and there's funneling and there's, but you don't see many courses that actually go sell more. Um, It feels like people don't use that language. So, and apart from YouTube, where do people go to learn, I guess? Because I think there's also that if I go to, I don't know, the Australian Sales Institute, I don't know if that's a thing. Yes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I'll yeah be, I know what you're saying. Then I'll be a salesperson. I don't want to be. So how do you learn to do sales without learning to do sales, if that makes well, sense? Look, so I'll kind of take a two-pronged answer to this. So the first is there is an absolute ton of freely available content out there. And, and I mean not just kind of random people on YouTube, really, really, really good content. So, so that's the first thing I'd say, you, you know, um, reach out to people who you know or are successful in business and, and ask them for advice because people are very, very, very comfortable to, to give some advice. But also ask them for the books they read, the, the people they follow online, all of that sort of thing. So that's the first angle, which is, you know, just start to kind of create some, <clears throat> some you know, I have a whole lot of folks who, who read my content regularly and watch my videos and reach out to me and ask me questions and change emails. And that's all for free. And I don't have any, any sort of agenda with that because I just want to, want to help those folks. But there's a ton of people like me out there in the world who will give value for free. But the second thing is, you know, invest in yourself. So, so there are some really good courses out there that are available and workshops you can attend and, you know, video series that you can actually, you know, spend not a, very, not, not a lot of money on, but something that says, this is a valuable skill that I think I need to develop. Um, so let me actually invest in myself. So there'd be two answers. And the third thing I'd say is probably sales isn't rocket science. It really isn't. A lot of the time, our instincts are, are, are pretty close to the mark because just think about what it's like to be sold to and what are the experiences we like and what are the ones that we find you know, frustrating or annoying. So if you're engaging with someone, just, just walk a mile in their shoes and ask yourself the question, how should I interact with them in the first place? You know, what should I do before we have our first meeting? You know, do, do I want to try and sell them straight away or do I want to, you know, drip feed some value over a period of time and then they'll be predisposed to want to work with me? Just be yourself, be authentic, but be easy to deal with. Above all else, be easy to deal with, I would say. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that would also come from um, a self-perception of who you 
are what your value is because if you come into an interaction, let's say you're talking to somebody about your product and you see your value is in, um, my value is in what I know, I'm going to tell you everything I know about the product yeah. as opposed to being open to listening or finding out the problems. Is that the sort of empathy yeah. piece that you would learn in sales Look, training? I, look, you, you may or may not, because not everyone thinks that empathy is important in, in, in sales, for, for starters. A lot of the training that's delivered is more technical training, so you know, help you understand the product or service that you sell, or you know, training around negotiation, or how to craft a deal, or how to put gotcha. a pricing proposal together. Now, there's a ton of other stuff that exists, and I prefer, you know, a lot of the training I do is how to run, you know, how to run a really, really good meeting, what to do if a prospect has gone quiet, how to, you know, you mentioned it, how to, how to use stories as a, as a way to, um, to really um, land your, your idea. So things that relate more to emotional intelligence and EQ than it does to necessarily IQ or technical skills. But I think, I think innately we have a pretty good understanding of um, what it's like to be interacted with well by somebody. And, and we, need to, we need to bring that to the fore. So you talked about, you know, instead of leading with, with, with a kind of a technical offering, do the discovery or the curious piece at the front. That's really important. But the other thing we often forget about is if you sell me your thing, your widget, your course, whatever it is, it's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. What we need to get much, much better at is focusing on the end itself. So why is this person coming to buy my course? What's, what's the, the better version of the future that they're trying to achieve for themselves? And am I clear on that? Is it so that they can get a better job? Is it so that they can make more money? Is it so that they're, um, they're, they're, um, uh, longevity in their business extends? Is it because they're bored? Is it because they want to have a career change? So actually understanding what the outcome is that they're trying to achieve and then you reverse engineer that back. So if I'm talking to you about something, I'm asking you questions like, why did you make the time for this meeting? And tell me about how you're doing this thing at the moment and what the frustrations are because customers will teach us how to sell to them if we, if we ask some intelligent curious questions and then we shut up and listen to the answers and then we probe for more insight and we go in with an agenda of i don't care if i sell you anything it doesn't matter it's it's immaterial but i want this to be a really good interaction i want to earn the right to have the next step of the process and more importantly i want to make sure that i understand what's important to you and that's a very very different mindset but what that does is it completely takes the pressure off you and by association it completely takes the pressure off the person you may or may not be be selling something to because if you go in with an agenda of I have to sell you something and you've got a ton of pressure on your shoulders and invariably we just, we just push that pressure on to the, the person we're talking to. It's just, it just happens instinctively. Whereas if I go in and my only agenda is I want this to be a really, really good interaction and, and that's it. Then I prepare that way. My demeanor is, is much more relaxed. I'm putting much less um, pressure on myself to sell you something. You relax. We have a really good conversation and you think to yourself, Oh, that was really good. I can see myself working with that person. And then we earn the right to move to the next step. And that's it. And that, that's a much, much uh, better outcome for both parties. Yeah. Because I think also when people, and especially startups and especially business owners or founders, when they're so attached to the product as it stands at the moment that 
there would be a sense you would think of if I ask you too many questions, I may have to change the product. If I, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world. Oh Quite no, that's what I mean. Imagination. Yeah. So yeah. being open-minded, going, my product is fluid. Um, well, I guess look, have I, a different conversation. It, within reason, and so I would I would put it to you this way: if you're if you're in startup mode, then you don't want to be the person that says, "If I build it, they will come." Because then you, yeah, gotcha. you go away and you go all secret squirrel and you put your head down for six, nine, 12 months and then you pop up and expect the world to suddenly you know, go mad for the thing that you've built, but you haven't actually validated it with your respective customers. You may not even know exactly who they are. So that's a massive missed opportunity. What we need to be doing is actually, and I had a call last night with regard to something that we we're building at the moment with a, with a potential beta customer. So I had like 10, 10 folks on, on the line from their side and I was saying to them, all right, Here's what I'm thinking at this point, based on what I know of you. The next step is, if you're up for this, we're going to get you to, to come in and talk about what are the features you need and how would you like it to work and what are the challenges you know, you're trying to face. So that's not the only way to do it, but if you've got a, if you've got a brand new product offering, getting some early stage beta customers or, or prospects into the tent while you're still building it is often a much, much better way to do it mm. than assuming that you know. But the flip side is, once you have the thing built, you don't want to keep rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding. You need to now get to a point where you can sell it to a broad audience without having to necessarily change it or evolve it. So there's kind of two schools. In the early stages, absolutely, we get a couple of trusted customers or prospects, bring them inside the tent, and they'll actually help us um, you know, build something that's really fit for purpose. But then when we've got that thing built, that's the opportunity to, to then monetize and sell that to a broad audience without feeling that that's a bad thing. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, I can't, I can't. What if I sell it to, you know, 1,000 people or 10,000 or 100,000? Surely that dilutes the value of the thing that I have. Maybe it does. I don't know. You know, it's going to be different from business to business. But, but don't put the handbrake on your own potential success by having a negative perception of making money or mm. having lots of customers or or um, being commercially successful. Because if you're not commercially successful and viable, no matter how great the idea is, it'll, it'll fall off a cliff at some point. So that's the first thing we have to work at is financially, how do we make, make sense of this so that we can have as broad an impact as possible? Yeah, and I think this is applicable as well in the nonprofit sector. Even though that horrid word nonprofit, you still have to have a profit. You still have to... Um, sell what it is that you do you still have to sell your idea in order to get donations um so even though it's called non-profit you still have to turn a profit in order to sustain a business in order to have the impact that you want to have well also i've you know i've worked with a number of non-profits over the years and the donation is the sale in that situation mm. so what you're selling in that in, in that in that um scenario is you're selling the, the story behind your your nonprofit organization and the social impact which you know either the individuals or the businesses making the donation can have and you're competing against a whole lot of other not-for-profits that have an equally compelling story and an equally important impact you know social impact that they want to have so so that's ironically one of the most competitive markets out there is the not-for-profit sector where you're competing for the holy dollar of, of your, your potential donors with all of these other businesses that potentially want the same dollar from the same donors. And so in my experience, many of the not-for-profits that do, do well and, and are well you know, um, run 
have people who've come from the business sector, either sitting on their boards or a CEO or right down through their organization that have recognized that we need to run this as a business and we need to run this professionally and we need to run this in a way that, that delivers on our promise back to all of those donors if we want to be around for the long haul. So, so I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very competitive uh, selling environment, the not-for-profit sector. So we've talked a bit about empathy and understanding your market, understanding your client. How do you, because you talked a little bit about relationship building in sales. What does mm-hmm. that look like? And what does the relationship, um, how do you develop a relationship in sales and why is that important? Look, you know, you, you've probably heard the adage that, you know, um, people buy from people or people buy from people that they like and they trust. And, you, you know, there's a variety of different versions of that that have been thrown around. But it's true. And, you know, given the opportunity, we're much more likely to engage with, with someone that we, that we know and we like and we trust. How do you get to that point? Well, there's a couple of different ways you can get there. The first way you can get there, not the first way, but one of the easiest ways is you and I are talking now because we shared a mutual person that, that connected us up. So if you get a warm referral or introduction from a shared contact that you both like and have trust with, then you skip out a whole lot of the steps and you get straight to the, to the right conversation. So one of the easiest mechanisms for, for businesses, small or large, to start to build relationships with new prospects is to tap into their existing network of, of friends and connections and customers and get those friends and connections and customers to make warm introductions to, to people who they think could be you know, a worthwhile conversation. So that's a, an incredibly easy way to do it, and yet very, very few businesses do that. What most businesses do is they try and market to the world you know, to what they call white space or blue sky or, you know, green field or whatever the terminology is. (laughs) And it's really hard because then you're trying to start conversations with a ton of people that you've never spoken to before. And that takes much, much longer. It takes longer to build a trust. You have to retain their attention. You have to do a whole lot of things. So, so there's different mechanisms to do it. But I think one of the findings that we've had as we've done these win and loss reviews all over the world is that Cultural fit comes up all the time. Businesses talk about they were a good cultural fit for us. And then when you probe that, you're like, what do you mean? You're like, well, you know, they, they understood our culture. They, we could see ourselves working with them. We spoke, we spoke to other businesses that had worked with them, and they said that they're, they're nice people to work with, and they're really responsive. And if there's a problem, they'll stick around, and they'll get the problem resolved for you. And, um, you know, and a whole lot of different things. And that kind of broadly falls under the... the the label of cultural fit. But what that's saying is that we want to, we want to be able to, to uh, have trust in the people we buy from and we partner with, particularly if it's not a one-off transaction like the vacuum cleaner salesperson you said that disappears and all of a sudden the head falls off the vacuum cleaner and you're like, you're left with no option. We want to have people who will be with us for the long haul. Often we talk about becoming a trusted advisor. Salespeople say, I want to be a trusted advisor to, the, to my customers. I want to be a, a partner but when the customers consider you in that way, when they consider you as a trusted advisor or partner, that's a customer for life. And, and you don't get there by being transactional. You get there by having a long-term view, by sharing their risk, by taking the time to understand them, by um, being proactive and trying to add value over and above just the thing that you sell them once a month or once a year or whatever, by genuinely caring. Um, and, and ultimately, so much of that comes back to empathy. If you don't, care enough you're just going to focus on you and your business 
and very rapidly you'll lose momentum. If you care, really genuinely care about your customers and the outcomes they get, they will know that and they will stick with you through thick and thin and they will refer you to other people and they will work with you on new, new parts of your, your product or your service and they will become your strongest advocates. And, and that comes from, from empathy. It all, it all stems from you taking the time to care and, and, and demonstrate that you know them. And they'll reciprocate in kind. And I guess that's where that pricing piece comes from as well is I care about my customers, but I need to care about my business in order to continue to serve those customers. If I Correct. continue to give and give and give and I run myself into the ground, then I won't be in a position to have a business that then provides that impact. Correct. And so this comes back to something you, you said at the top of the call, which is the self-care piece. You know, empathy or emotional intelligence, I, I think, and some of the definitions say, is about understanding yourself and where you're at before you can then put yourself in someone else's shoes. So if we keep, if we keep um, putting everyone else's interests above our own, then what we're actually doing is creating an environment where we can't sustain it for the long haul. And, and I know a lot of business owners and I know a lot of salespeople that do that. They prioritize every, all of you know, their customers and their internal stakeholders and their, their, their bosses and everyone else's needs above their own. And that can, you know, that can lead to certainly stress, but also health issues. You know, I myself was a regular uh, attendee at the, uh, at the ER uh, with heart issues, which came from stress, you know, throughout, throughout my own sales career. I had friends who, who had marriages that broke down and, you know, addictions and, and friends who passed away. Um, it's, it, it's a hugely, hugely heavy burden to bear if you don't take the time to focus on yourself first and foremost. So your health, your stress reduction strategies, um, diet, exercise, all, all of the other things, mental health. There's a, there's, there's a huge underlying um, mental health crisis in you know, in the industry because a lot of people are, are carrying a ton of stress and they don't quite know how to, to alleviate that stress. So that's a long-winded response again. And a lot of, it must be the Irish in me, Leanne, all my responses are long-winded. But it's, it's, it's a really important point. It's a really critical point that we, we actually have to be a little bit selfish and, and prioritize ourselves first in terms of that well-being and, and mental and physical health in order to then um, be around for the long haul because it's, it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's, a, it's an ultra marathon that just continues every day. And if you're not in the right shape mentally and physically, then you just can't, you can't sustain that pace. So what else is it about um, that sales industry or that, um, that piece of work that is so stressful? Like what is it and how, is, how else is that sort of manifesting negatively in that group of professionals? Let me, let me give you a quote that, that and I won't name, name any names, but this was an, an old CEO of mine. He said, uh, every week's a month, every month's a quarter, and every quarter is the most important quarter there has ever been or there okay. will ever be. Yeah. So can you imagine that, that level of, of stress being applied constantly? And you're only ever as good as your last month or your last quarter. So you could have been in an organization for 20 years. You had a couple of bad quarters. No, this isn't all sales organizations. I must, I must stress. Oh, but, I've worked in one that, like that. Well, there you go. You know, <laughs> so, so it's, it, imagine you're a school teacher and, and someone walks into the classroom, has a look around, sees how you're teaching and says, 
all right, I'll give you two days to get your, get your teaching methods up or you're out the door. That w- it would never happen. It wouldn't happen in any, like you're working in, in, you know, in a coffee shop or you're working in, in an engineering firm or a law firm or whatever. Nobody walks in, looks around, and then tells you you've got a week to get your, you know, get your act together. That's, salespeople have, have that pressure all the time. Oh, I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it's really binary. It's, it's, it's a situation where a lot of the time, you are judged on, on numbers and you might have a terrible territory and you might be going through a pandemic and there might be a whole lot of other things happening, but you could very easily have a senior leadership team that says, I don't care. That's not my problem. And so you're carrying that stress all the time, you know, with a view to, you must hit a number, you must hit a target, you must hit these KPIs or these, whatever. That's incredibly stressful. And then you get to the end of the year and you breathe out for 30 seconds and then you get handed a new target and a new territory and it's bigger. You know, the, the number is bigger, but the territory is smaller and you have to go back on the, you know, the groundhog day again. And, and, you know, just talking about it makes, you know, makes me stress, but, but there's a lot of people that is their life. And a lot of the other people in, in some of these businesses, not only do they not respect them, but they, they go, ah, oh, they just don't have long lunches. They just, they just take orders. What they don't realize is they're, they're, operating this heightened level of stress and anxiety all the time so that the other individuals in the business don't have to do that. And they can rely on them to bring in the bacon and everyone, you know, continues on the merry-go-round for another week, month, year. It's incredibly stressful. And and I think, unfortunately, a, a reasonable chunk of people are succumbing to that stress in different ways. Does the, does the variable income play in that as well? Like if they're commission-based and they've got, Bills and families, and because um, they they in my mind would be more susceptible to external factors, um, such as yeah, the market abs- or things like that that they absolutely. can't control. That, that's exactly right. You've got you've got a ton of things which are beyond your control. I mean, you can certainly control how you show up every day, and you can control how how prepared you are, how professional you are, and all of those things. But there's a myriad of different things which are beyond your control. And, you know, like, like a pandemic is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. But potentially you have 25, 50 or more percent of your, your earnings are at risk. And that has a huge impact on, on people and on their capacity to provide for their families. And operating in that, in that heightened state for an extended period it can be it can be really really hard. So yes, I think that's the case. Some organisations are getting smart and they're changing how they um, how they compensate salespeople. Um, but there's always this trade off. They're saying, well, you know, if we just give them a salary, they're not going to be as motivated to work, and then they're not going to drive the numbers, and then we're going to miss out. But you know, if we if we only give them commission, then you know we're going to lose people. We're going to have a rapid turnover. So so different businesses are trying to get you know look at different models and get the mix right. But it certainly is one of the factors which drives stress now on the flip side it's also one of the factors which keeps people coming back because if you can overachieve if you, you know if you're given a target and you you hit 140 percent of your number and your earnings are uncapped then you can have a great year but the next year the next two or three years you can have really really bad years so so that's the sort of the risk and reward that, that people are dealing with and i guess that the the income side as well as the mental health side i guess that's where also empathetic leadership comes in of going okay i understand my people i understand the market i understand the stresses i understand who these people are as people 
And then in order to get the most out of these people um, through productivity and motivation and um, commitment and working towards the values, then empathetic leadership you think would be the cornerstone of that. 100% agree. Couldn't agree more. Those leaders who are empathetic will undoubtedly you know, get more out of their teams, retain people for longer because that drives loyalty. Because if you come to me and you say, Kian, I understand that you are having a really tough quarter or a really tough year because of all of these things which are happening, which are, which are beyond your control. But I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I see the work that you're doing. And I see everything that you're, you're doing to try and mitigate the circumstances you found yourself in. That just gives me an opportunity to relax and to breathe and to feel, mm-hmm. okay, I'm, I'm understood here. And I'm not just being um, judged on my most recent quarter because of all the things that are beyond my control. And that's likely to drive a ton of loyalty and retention and say, this is someone who I want to work for. So a thousand percent empathetic leadership in, in sales leaders, I would say is probably the number one um, uh, attribute of, of really, really great leaders. And then that goes through, you know, not just to the teams that they lead, but also to the customers they interact with. And to you know all other aspects of their of their um, you know their their career because if you if you're an empathetic leader and you have loyal teams they tend to perform better so that's actually a really smart way of building your own you know career trajectory because that's really leading people there's a big difference in my opinion between having a manager title on your business card and being a leader those two things sometimes correlate but very often they don't um, and some of the best leaders I've ever seen led that way while they were still just individual contributors and right the way through their careers, they demonstrated that empathy and that care factor for others. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's being authentic in that. I mean, I've seen salespeople who will treat the customers like they are royalty, but treat their staff as though they're a commodity. Um, And I think that has to be genuine across the board for all of those people. A hundred percent. As soon as you, change your stripes when you walk back in the door it's fake it's it's just it's just being smart enough to um fake empathy for your customer interactions but but it's not it's not your real demeanor your real behavior your real personality and it's hard to keep up uh you know alive for that long so you will get found out and even if you don't get found out by customers and i've seen this happen many times and we could do a whole other podcast on the craziness of of internal you know uh, behaviors you're t- you'll lose you'll lose the people who, who are there to support you and then you won't get the outcomes you want for your customers because all these people will put you at the back of the queue or will bury your paperwork or will actively undermine you because you're such an idiot um it, it's not a recipe for success in my in my view be authentic absolutely but be be authentically um empathetic to everyone not just to to the people who can give you money yeah absolutely and i think when it comes to um the salespeople and the business people and all the people that we're talking to, it's that kindness for yourself as well. Like kindness sort of has to pervade everything. So what advice have you got for people who suddenly after this podcast go, hmm, I'm actually in sales. Okay, let's see how we go with that. Or people who are career salespeople. What sort of advice have you got for them to take care of their mental health and put themselves first? I think there's a couple of things. One I would say is, you know, we're all busy and we're all time poor. Um, but what I would strongly encourage you to do is build in time for yourself. 
and actually make that the highest priority. So, so create habits and, and not just in your working day, but certainly in your working day as well. But those habits could be about, you know, getting exercise and doing it in the morning before you get busy or not logging on to your PC or your, your phone for that matter, as soon as you get out of bed and then playing Russian roulette with your, with your mood for the day. But, but, you know, doing some of the things for you either early in the day or doing some of your productive work early in the day. Um, setting other, other KPIs or, or goals that aren't just revenue-based. Because if, if your success or failure in a given year is determined by one number, that's a, that's a really, really high-risk position to be in. Um, so we've got to look for other metrics to, to determine, have we had a good year? Have we been successful? Have we, you know, have we worked hard, et cetera, et cetera? Well, the other thing I'd say, and I was bad at this for a period of my career, is recognize that you're a resource in a business. And whilst you're performing, then you might get you know, all of the, you know, the, the car and the expense account, whatever, but you're a resource in a business. You need to invest in your career. You need to invest in your skills and your development. You need to invest in how do you stay relevant. And one of the things you need to do is, is stay current, continue to you know, read and, and, and listen to podcasts and upskill and get, disrupt some of the things that worked well for you over the last five or 10 years and, and never catch yourself saying, oh, no, I'm not, I don't do technology or, oh, no, I don't do this or, oh, yeah, I'm, I don't really care about emotional intelligence. Have a, have a, have a thirst for knowledge if you want to stay relevant. Um, but also it's just more interesting that way as well. Don't don't expect the organization you work for to be the only one who invests in you. There's a million, million incredibly um, valuable but also freely available resources to invest in yourself. So if you if you push that responsibility onto someone else, you're missing a massive trick and um, and you may find yourself surplus to requirements quicker than you think. Mm. Do you find boundaries as well? Sort of going, okay, because in my mind, especially if you're, let's say, a founder or a startup or you're working in now an online tech or the, those boundaries would blur because you could pretty much be on your computer or on social media and always selling and always interacting 24 hours a day. So yeah. where does boundaries sort of play in that? Oh, look, I, should, I might have to go and get my wife and bring her in to, to contribute <laughs> to this part of the conversation because I've been guilty of that, certainly in the early years where you're wrapped up in, in you know, the success or failure and, and it's very hard. You're right, the two bleed into each other and um, it's, it's incredibly easy to do stuff on the weekends and pick up the phone and you know, check LinkedIn or send a quick this. Or, um, so, so I don't pretend to be the, the best at uh, that separation of church and state, but I've, you know, I definitely think I've got better at it. I think you, what you have to realize is you'll burn out if you're constantly, constantly focused on this stuff. If you're up till 2 a.m. and then back up again at 6 and you're, you're not giving yourself a chance to mentally unwind. And also, it's kind of boring. You need to have other pursuits and other things that, you know, that keep you interested and engaged because otherwise you can get very sort of single point sensitive and, and all of a sudden your, your dinner party invitations will dry up because you're that person that just kind of bangs on about the same topic all the time. So, so I think... Work, work really hard. And I've seen some really great TED Talks and met a couple of in, really interesting people who will talk about the importance of deep work. So you turn everything off. You know, you, you, you maximize your screen. You don't have any alerts. You're, you know, you take apps off your phone that are the ones that will, you know, will distract you. And you do your deep work. And you work out the time. Is that early in the morning? Is that late at night? 
that you can focus and, 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 you know, kind of you're switched on when you're on, but then you're off when you're off rather than being sort of, you know, half baked and, and, you know, continuing to sort of dip a toe in the water every so often. I think that's to me is the best mechanism, um, whether you're running a business or even if you're just, you know, doing your day to day salesperson is, is just see, know where the off switch is and be ready to press it and press it hard. Yeah. And I think that also comes from that self-perception of you're allowed to be a human first. You're allowed to have off time because, and it's separating that identity from this is Leanne and Kian as people. And like the success of my business is not who I am. A hundred percent. And there's a lot of people who are confused by that. They're confused by their personal brand and the brand on their business card. And those are the people who tend to get the biggest shock if all of a sudden there's a 20% you know, global um, reduction and they're out of a job. And they're like, but how, how could you let me go? Because they're so intrinsically connected to the brand that was on their business card or on top of the building that they can't understand, they can't fathom how they could be let go from an organization like that. So we have, I think we have to be loyal to, our, to, our, um, to ourselves first and foremost before we then extend that loyalty to any other business. And that's even as someone who owns and runs a business, I still would put that loyalty to self above loyalty to, to the brand on the business card. Because if you don't, if those two things are, aren't too mixed up, you can get a really rude awakening when, when all of a sudden there's a, there's a coming apart. And I think lately that may have come as a, a rude shock to some people that they're now home. They're now not as essential as they thought they were so it it's probably a time as well to do what you've just said and look at the bigger picture look at the self-identity look at the upskilling look at the um career progression look at the who i am and where i want to be and um and using that opportunity to self-reflect that well i had a fascinating um last week i did 20 one-on-one coaching calls with uh salespeople from one particular client of mine and three people in those calls, when I ask them about, you know, you know, what are you aspiring to do over the next three to five years to help me understand, they led by saying, I want to be happy. And I thought that was fascinating because I, I don't think I've ever heard that before. And I thought it was really interesting that three people in a, in a short space of time all came up with a very close variation on that same theme. So it was, I want to be happy in what I do. I want to enjoy my work and my colleagues and whatever. And that was the primary, that was the starting point. And then, you know, career progression and, you know, make some more money and maybe traveling and all of those things. But they were, they were secondary to, I want to be happy and I want to enjoy what I'm doing. And, and that was incredibly refreshing to hear. And, and I, for one, hope that one of the positive um, outcomes of the current pandemic is that people will be doing that soul searching that you alluded to, will be trying to work out what's important to them. And then we'll come to the realization that some of the things which we, um, which we have prioritized either consciously or unconsciously aren't actually that important. And we'll, there'll be a change of priorities. And I think that'd be an amazing, amazingly positive um, outcome of, of the current um, crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, let's wrap this up. Thank you so much. Honestly, I've been sitting here the whole time with my head on a tilt, just listening to you, like take furiously taking notes. So I hope that, all of our millions of listeners are furiously taking notes as well and really using this opportunity to look differently at um, what they do, how they do it, why they do it and get some enlightenment and 
I guess empowerment as well from from what it is that we've said. Um, thank you so much for today, Kian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Leanne. It's uh, it's been great to chat. Thank you so much. Um, so, where can people find you? Sure. Um, so, if you head over to LinkedIn. Um, uh, hit Kian McLaughlin, and I think I'm sure the spelling will be there, the funny Irish name. Um, please do reach out to me. Um, you can head to the Trinity Perspectives website. We've got a ton of, as we talked about at the start of the call, a ton of free resources of videos and podcasts and blogs. And, um, you know, my blog has been, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say, voted one of the top 50 in the world for the last four years from a sales perspective. And it's just all there and it's all free. You don't have to, you don't have to sign up. You don't have to do anything. So, Feel free to do that, or, or you can reach out to me directly. All, all my details are there as well. So i um, be very happy to have a chat. Oh, thank you so much. So Trinity Perspectives, um, and you've written a couple of books as well, haven't you? I have indeed, yeah. Um, so the most recent one was a book called Rebirth of the Salesman, um, still playing on the sort of the death of the salesman title, but really talking about what does it take to be, to be successful in sales, but also how does one stay relevant for the next three, four, or five years as as the world of business is is shifting sounds and things are changing. So um yeah, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually quite proud of that book because of the positive feedback I've had from salespeople and business people and just general people around the world. So yeah. Awesome. Well keep an eye out for that one. I'm gonna put some links around. Um Dan Pink I have heard of so we'll put a link to him as well. Thank you so much for today. Um you stay safe, you stay well and um we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Leo. Bye. Bye. Whoa. Well, if you're anything like me, you were taking notes the whole time. I'm actually going to go back and listen again and really take more notes about what I can do to connect and get out of that mindset of and I guess help others as well to get out of that mindset of this is my product, please sell my product, my product is awesome, I know that it works To What is it that you need? What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's, the, what's your pain point? Um, and being kinder in the process, less pressure, I mean kinder to myself in the process, less pressure and realising that the sales process is a long-term relationship. So people aren't just going to go, yeah, that's cool, I'll buy that. It's testing the waters. It's uh, testing your um, credibility, testing how reliable you are. So, yeah, like I said, I'm going to go back and listen to that one again because we really covered some stuff I hadn't heard before. Um, I hope you all got something out of it. And, again, whether you're a social enterprise, a startup, a career salesperson or um, you're in nonprofit and the donation is your sale. Uh, I think there was something in there for all of us today. My name's Leanne Butterworth. That was the Empathy Podcast and Empathy in Sales with Kian McLaughlin. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.